0: Amen. Well, marriage says, I'm committed to you in all the ways that you will change. And marriage says, I'm not going anywhere, but there's, there's two problems with every marriage. And I always say this, there's two problems and only two problems with every marriage, the husband and the wife. Okay. That's it. The man and the woman. Other than that, the marriage is great. And you heard that one of the reasons we put that video up there and and we love the Turners and we kind of put them in front of you guys for a moment is because they have a normal marriage. Not anything major, not no major crisis. They're like, look, we're just dealing with natural conflict. We're learning how to communicate. We're learning how to have conversations. We're walking through different seasons, seasons and stages of our life. Now, here's what's exciting. In our church right now, we got all types of people, single and single again and uh, happily married and difficult in their marriage and, and all of those things. And we have probably about a dozen people right now that are engaged in our church. The amount of premarital uh, kind of counseling requests that we're getting and the marriages that are happening, and we're very, very excited about it. And we just want to talk about marriage for a moment, and, and we're going to look at a text on marriage today. If you'll turn to Matthew 5, uh, chapter, or chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 27. And, uh, and here's the thing about marriage. The first 10 years of marriage are the toughest. Uh, and most people, they don't know this. They don't realize that. You're building your career. You're building your family. You're figuring out your marriage. You're learning how to communicate. And most people who end their marriages, guess what they end them in the first 10 years? And then guess what they do? They get remarried. And guess what they redo? They live the hardest years of marriage again. Okay? And so, uh, first thing I want to tell you today is we love marriages. We're gonna look at a text today on marriage because Jesus, interestingly, as a single man in his 30s, as a virgin, speaks to us about marriage. So we're gonna look at that. But I also want to tell you, if you look around this room, I say this each week, you guys, those of you who come regularly at the 11 o'clock service, this room is packed. Look through there, there's our lobby, okay? Uh, Look through the camera, there's our VHQ venue. We're excited that everyone's here. Uh, We do have two other services. Do you guys know this? Okay, we have a nine o'clock and we have a five o'clock. This service is absolutely packed. That's because if you're coming for the first time, and if you are here for the first time, welcome, this is probably the service you're gonna come to. Let me just say this. We have two other services, and we, uh, we are we able to, this is one of the great things about our, our church and the way that we're structured is we're able to make good decisions quickly, right? We don't have a committee on committees, right? God so loved the world, he didn't send a committee, okay? Have you ever heard that? Do you know that if Moses had a committee, Israel would still be in the wilderness, okay? So we, the reason that we don't have a committee, we're able to do things very, very quickly. We're able to make good decisions quickly. We are moving our first service time to 9.15, Next week. So when you come next week, we, we would ask you, if you can, if you're not serving, you're just attending, you're showing up, you wanna worship with us, we're so glad you're here, could you move to the 915 service? You can, we've moved it, so now you can leave your house by nine and still be five minutes late to our service, okay? There you go. Uh, <laughs> Okay, um, so we would love to have you here, and then also we have a five o'clock service. That also we are just trying to—we're trying to increase. What does it look like to increase our serving capacity, our seating capacity, our sending capacity? Uh, part of it is if you can. When we know not, not everyone can. If you can, would you consider moving? But with that said, let me take a moment and pray for us because here's what we're talking about today. Okay, sex, lust, divorce, and telling the truth. Let's pray. Lord, we just, we've got a lot to talk about this morning. I'm excited about it, Lord. We just know there's lots of people in here. There's people who are single and they wanna get married. And it's a prayer they've been praying, Lord. And I pray that you would, one of the signs of health in our church would be many marriages, many strong marriages, many marriages young in life, early on in life, beginning adulthood together. Lord, we know there are many people who are single again. They're single again, they didn't wanna be. Through death, through desertion, through divorce, they find themselves a widower, a a widower. Well, they find themselves a single parent, Lord, and there's so much grace for all of them. Lord, there are people in here who struggle with sexual addiction. Lord, we need grace. There are people in here who are walking in a measure of freedom, and we need grace. We need to be grateful. Lord, speak to each of us. This is what the word of God does. It speaks to the soul and to the heart and to the mind. Do this all in Jesus' name. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter five, verse 27, Jesus is not afraid to deal with tough topics. God is not afraid to deal with tough topics. We are not afraid to deal with tough topics. Now this is exciting because uh, we have a posture here that we are under the word, okay? We are not over the word. We are under the word. Here's what we believe. We don't believe. Now you'll hear occasionally hear people say something like, did the church create the Bible? No, the Bible created the church. That's a good way to think about it. The church didn't create the Bible and put it together. No, no. The Bible is so magnificent. The word of God is so powerful. It comforts, it creates, it corrects, it controls, it counsels that it creates the church. And we are looking at the most famous sermon by the most famous preacher who ever lived, Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus isn't afraid to talk about tough topics. Last week, he talks about sinful, unrighteous anger. This week, he talks about sex and lust. What are the two major struggles that most men and most women struggle with? Anger and lust, okay? Now, now Freud uh, noticed this a long time ago. He said, he said uh, what is it? Because you know when you can't control something, it shows up in your fantasy life. That's, that's one of the ways you know I don't know how to control it. You're like, why am I dreaming about her? Why am I dreaming about him? Why am I dreaming about that? That's fantasy. Or it's, it's, it's uh, the idea of the, the daydreaming about telling your boss off or getting revenge, right? Have you ever had that thought in your mind where you tell kind of your boss or your employee or your ex and you tell them everything and they bow down before you, okay? And right? you ever plan revengeful thoughts in your mind? So Jesus is gonna talk about these things. Now, here's the good news. Jesus cares about your sex life. Jesus cares about your love life. That may be new news to you, but most of us wish that Jesus wouldn't care about those things, right? I mean, when you say Jesus is Lord, it means Lord of everything. Like, have you ever wondered, like the other day, my daughter and I were reading through the Bible together in a year, and she comes over to, to the room, and she comes in, she goes, Dad, what is this word, and what does it mean? Circumcised? <sighs> you know, so... It's like, well, what is that about? You know, I didn't get into all of this with her, but I'll get into it with you just for a moment. What is circumcision about? Circumcision is about I am part of your sexual life, God's saying. I am part of the most intimate, most personal, most sensitive area of your life, the area of your life you don't even want me to be involved in. That's exactly where I'm involved in. Now, here's the other good news. There's lots of grace. We're gonna talk about lots of things today, right? And here's the rule in, in your life. Wherever you are, that's where you start. It's a great rule. Wherever you are, you're like, I'm really struggling. Great, that's where you start. And we believe that Jesus doesn't just forgive us, he changes our lives. Now the world says, come as you are, stay as you are, celebrate who you are, make me accept you as you are. The the Bible, the church, Jesus, we say something different. We say, come as you are, right? Because if the church is a hospital, you don't stand outside the hospital, go "Get, get well before you come into the hospital. You invite people into the hospital, but you don't say, now let me put you with all the other sick people and give you no help and just talk about your sickness. No, the point of being in a hospital is what? To get better. And so, so there's lots of grace, there's lots of help, there's lots of hope, but truth is always connected to grace. And we say here all the time, we're not looking for a loophole. We're not looking for a way around it. We're working our way through it with God and with grace. So with that said, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Here's what he says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 says this. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. And most people thought, well, great, I didn't do that because if you're going to give me a really kind of wooden definition of adultery, it is just, you know, okay, I, as a married person, did not sleep with somebody else who is married. That would be kind of the most simple way to look at uh, adultery. They thought, okay, well, I'm good. Verse 28, he says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So today we're going to have the birds and the bees talk together, okay? And what I'm gonna to try to do is I'm gonna to try to avoid two extremes. And these are the two extremes you have to avoid when you talk about sex. Uh, one is you don't wanna be crude and crass like a comedian up here, I'm not trying to do that. The other is you don't wanna be clinical and cold and unhelpful. And, and again, we've got. It's, what's interesting is that the, one of the growing demographics in our church are high schoolers who are bringing their parents to our church. And this is gonna be a very awkward day for both of them, okay? Both of the kids and the parents today, okay? Because we're gonna talk about a lot of interesting things. Um, <laughs> But this is an important conversation. It's an important conversation that your church has not been having. It's an, and, and by the way, you know, you know, this as a parent, like if you're having the birds and the bees talk and all that kind of stuff, um, it's not a conversation that you have one time. It is conversations that you're constantly having early and often in the life of your, your home and in the life of your children. So first we have to talk about sex. And the reason is, is because what lust is, is it's a distortion of sex. And so now it, this is how it works, right? God creates something, sex, it could be money's a good thing. It could be food's a good thing. I mean, it could be all, anything that God creates. And then uh, what, what does Satan do? He counterfeits it. He makes kind of a different version of it. He, creates it for a, he, he, he manipulates it for a different purpose, right? So God designs something that's good. And then what does Satan do? Distort it. God makes something and it's good. This is why it's like everything that God made in its natural form and for its right use is good. But what does Satan do? Satan goes and manipulates it. So let's talk just for a little bit about sex because we have to understand sex first to understand uh, lust. Okay, let's talk about sex in our culture. And this is part of what we're always doing, right? We're always trying to do what John Stott called double listening. Double listening is I'm listening very closely to the word, the word of God, and I'm listening very, very closely to the world. And, the wor- and not because the world's the authority, but because I want to understand. I want to understand how it's both working. Okay, so we're going to look at the word about, and we have been looking at the word about sex and adultery and lust, but we have to understand the world. Now, what's happening in the world? Now, here's what's happening in the world. Sex has been divorced um, from marriage and from children. And why is that? Because of the birth control pill. Now, I'm not up here today with my limited time to talk about the morality of the birth control pill or not. What I'm talking about is when it came out, when the birth control came out, it gave women voluntary control over over the reproduction function of their body for the first time in all of human history. And what happened was when you did that, you had sex that was now divorced from marriage and sex that was now divorced from children. And basically it was the beginning of the sexual revolution, which we still have not recovered from, has created lots of pains, lots of problems, lots of heartache, lots of hardship. Now here's the other thing that's happened. When you have a, when you have a sexual revolution and you divorce marriage from children and you, or sex from children and from marriage, here's what happens. Now what used to happen and what happens biblically, and this is why we have to understand it, this is why marriage is important, okay? Biblically they would say the only context for sexual relations is marriage, right? Like, like this, like, hey, marriage is a fire and what does a fire do? Well, it could heat a home and you know, cook your food and bring warmth, or it could burn everything down. So what do you need to do if you're gonna play with fire? You need to know where, where does it go, okay? And so we would say, okay, historically, biblically, what has happened is we said, okay, marriage, sex is supposed to happen only in marriage. And what you have to do is you have to make a covenant. So, so historically, think about this you know, again, I'm trying to be careful how I talk about all these things so we understand together. But what you'd have to do is you would have to basically stand up in front of all of your friends and all of your family and you would make a vow to love that person unconditionally. Remember marriage, uh, I'm not going anywhere and I'm committed to you in all the ways that you will change and I'm committing my whole self to you and that's the only way I get to see you naked. And that's the only way you get to see me naked. That, that's the whole idea. And that we're going to show, because what, what, what sex is, is sex is the sacrament of marriage. It's the baptism of marriage. It's the outward sign of the invisible reality. That's why sex doesn't fix anything. Sex is the sign that the marriage is going well. That's what it is. It's the outward sign. So it's only supposed to be in covenant. Now, what have we done? Consent. Have you heard that word? No, well, everyone's like, why is there so much heartbreak about sex? Right? Why do things arise like the Me Too movement? I'm not against the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement is, is, is a place for women to say, I'm hurt and I've been hurt and here, I'm coming out and I wanna tell, you know, I've got a wife and I've got a daughter and I've got a mom. Well, the Me Too movement in part was it was a way to say, okay, there's some things that have happened, okay? And then what's the conversation about in that? What's, what's part of the conversation? Was there consent, was there not consent? That's part of the conversation. And what, what, what happens is we live in a society, it's like, it's, is consent the answer? So what about consent plus alcohol? What about consent plus be 18 and be on a college campus for four years? What about consent plus I was, it was young and it was late? And now they're having all this conversation and if you're following this stuff on the college campus, well, it was consent then, but it's not consent now. Now, I said yes, but now I don't say yes. When I look back, I should have said no, so now I'm gonna persecute you and prosecute you. It's like, oh, geez. It's like, well, what's the answer to all this? I don't know the answer to all that. What I'm trying to tell you is this is the mess that we're in. When you take marriage out of a covenant... And you give at the, you put the level as low as consent, you get a bunch of problems. And so we have to talk about sex. A couple things about sex uh, as well to say. Um, <clears throat> there's different ways sex has been talked about. Sex by the world. How does the world view sex? God. How does the church often been viewed as sex? Gross. How does God view sex? Gift. Okay. So let me explain this. So so the world views sex as a god, right? We know this because every god must be sacrificed to. So what is what is abortion about? Abortion is a sacrament of the culture that says if we're going to worship sex, someone has to die, it's going to be children. That's it, it's that you wonder why, why is it being fought on every side? Why is everybody, why is it so emotional? Why is it the quintessential value of the world? Because the quintessential God is, 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 is a sex and that God must be sacrificed to and the sacrifice is unborn children. Second thing we know that sex is a God in our culture is its identity. Right? Anytime you find your primary identity in it, the whole idea of the LGBTQ plus movement, which is getting longer, okay? It's becoming the alphabet soup movement. And the, re- the reason that is, is because it's like so many different identities. And then those identities don't fit me. And I need to find out my sexual identity because my sexual identity is the most important thing about me. It's like, it's not. It's, historically, it's not. Biblically, it's not. Globally, it's not. It's never been. It's, it could be part of your identity. Fair, fair enough. But, you know, it's, it's part of who you are. It's certainly not who, all of who you are. And so so you have all this. Now, now that's how the the world views it as a God. How does, um, and and, and it's understandable. Here's why. Because if you're not gonna worship the creator, then you're gonna worship the creation. What's the apex of God's creation? The human body. So, of course, you're gonna fall in love with, you know, you're gonna absolutely, if you're not worshiping God and understanding things correctly and the creator's not in the right place, the creation becomes what you worship. Now, the second thing is the church has tended to be known as, it shouldn't, but it's tended to be known as the place where sex is viewed as, Kind of gross, right? I mean, you know, you grow up and you tell the we basically tell our middle schoolers and high schools, sex is gross, dirty, and filthy. Save it for the one you love. <laughs> right? And everyone's like, I don't know about that. Um, and, and we have like, you know, I grew up in, again, I, I became a brand new believer at 16 years old, and I was immediately invited to the, the, uh, the purity ring celebration ceremony. If you're familiar with that, that was kind of a thing of the 90s and early 2000s. And There were some good things about it, but the whole idea was oh, this purity, and if you ever break it, you know, then then please flush your ring down the toilet. And it was and it was kind of it was kind of I mean seriously, it was kind of this. Hey, cre- it created this whole culture about it that was that was scared of sex. I mean, we're always trying to create a culture with the next generation that's not naive but innocent. And so it's it's not gross, it's not God, it's a gift. Sex is a good gift. It was I mean it's, it's kind of it's a weird thing for us to say, but think about it, because we don't think about God this way. It was God's idea. God created sex, and it's actually part of how he wants, it's like he's trying to communicate, that's the type of knowing I want to know you with. I want to have an, honestly, I I could show you places in the Bible that if I read them to you, Ezekiel 16, go look up that sometime. God talks about our relationship with him in sexual terms that would make you blush if you read it out loud. So sex, I mean, God has an entire book Song of Solomon, that if you were a Hebrew boy, you weren't allowed to read it till you were 13, okay? So, so God is not afraid of these things. Now, sex is holistic. And, and we're spending a lot of time, by the way, we're, we're, we do this a lot, we, we talk about a Christian worldview. We talk about a biblical theology of things, so that when some, when, when our students who are in high school, when they go off to college and their professor says something foolish about sex and lust, and, and completely makes fun of Christianity, they have a whole worldview to go, no, I actually understand sex completely. I actually understand its purposes. I understand that God made it for pleasure, for protection, for procreation. I know I know all that. Now and it's holistic. Okay, sex is mind, body and soul, right? So sex is I should say otherwise it, it, it is it is physical, it is emotional and it is spiritual. Right? We know it's physical. We know that God created our bodies for intense sexual pleasure. Right? This was God's idea. God did not create Adam and Eve go to the fridge to get something to drink, come back and go, "What are you guys doing?" <laughs> Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that would work. Okay, you know, it's like no. This was God's idea. Sex is is emotional and it's highly relational and it's highly vulnerable. We are the only mammals that have sex face to face. It is a highly emotional. It is a highly relational act. It is a highly spiritual act. This is why oftentimes if somebody's having a really hard time breaking up with somebody that they were dating for a while, it's like, how physical were y'all? Because there's sometimes a soul tie that happens. This is also why a woman, if she's beat up, will almost always report it. If she's raped, almost never reports it. It's something that I don't know all the reasons for that, but it touches a different part of her. I don't know why. This is why particularly men with the deepest sexual problems tend to have no dads. I don't know why. Th- this is why almost everybody's deepest regrets in their life across time, even as they age and get older and look toward the grave and they look back on their entire life, their greatest regrets often are sexual in nature. So sex is this incredible thing that we have to understand. It's a great gift, but, but we have to put it in perspective because then because when we, 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 when we read it, we're like, Jesus, why are you against lust? Right? I mean, what the world says is, you know, it's okay to look at the men, you just don't eat. Well, what's, what's wrong with looking? And so I want, I, want, I want us to look at this. If you look at me, let's look at um, chapter five, verse 28. Jesus, again, says this in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, we're gonna talk about lust and we're gonna say a couple things about it, okay? First, we're going to say that there are three types of men in the world, okay? Those who struggle with lust, those who lie, and those who are dead, And that's it, okay? (laughs) And probably the same for women, okay? But certainly for men. And and everybody has different sexually disordered desires. We're just gonna say this because we're gonna talk about a lot of things. Everybody is a sexual sinner. Everybody is sexually broken. What scripture and history would tell us is that the fall, when I speak of the fall, I'm talking about what happened in Genesis chapter three, uniquely seems to touch our sexuality. And so lust, now let me explain what lust is not, right? Because you can't just, because some people have an overly sensitive conscience. Lust does not mean you recognize that somebody's attractive, right? Lust does not mean you notice he's handsome, you notice she's pretty. Um, lust, I've heard it said this way, you, you know, there's nothing wrong with the glance, but you can't have the gaze, if that makes sense, okay? And don't get weird about the glance either, okay? I'm just, we're just, <laughs> we're just saying, you know, you're probably the rest of your life going to notice, oh, that's a pretty girl or that's a good looking guy. and then, you, know, you're, you're, you have eyes and you have a heart and you have a mind and you have red blood, you're going to notice that the rest of your life. But the question is, okay, it doesn't need to get lustful. Now, lust is not a strong desire for sex. That's helpful to know, because we don't want to read these things and go, I, well, I, you know, because that's where, again, that's the kind of the overly prudish misunderstanding in the church. It's like, lust doesn't mean that. In fact, God's given particularly men a strong sexual drive so that they would grow up. I mean, that's the hope. The hope is like, all right, I have this strong sexual dr- drive. Sex is for men. Or sex is in marriage. Marriage is for men. I've got to grow up. I've got to get educated. I don't need to get four or five master's degrees and things I don't need, right? I need to brush my teeth. I need to trim my nails. I need to shave my, keep, shave my facial hair at a decent, you know. Thing. I need to learn how to have a conversation. I need to pursue a woman. I need to find an apartment. Now what happens? We live in the exact opposite society, the society that rewards men for not growing up, right? It's like, well, actually, I, if I stay on the college campus and I don't grow up, then I have access to lots of women instead of one woman. This is part of what's happened. The the sexual revolution has had many negative effects. One is men are not growing up. You can draw a line between extended adolescence or emerging adulthood or men not growing up and sex being available at a very young age. It's basically the same reality. So anyway, so we got lust. There's multiple elements of lust. First of all, there's the idea that our entire culture right now is built on lust. Hardee's commercials are filled with lust, okay? You just wanted a double cheeseburger and they're trying to sell you sex, okay? I don't know if you've ever heard of... uh, the organization or the website, Ashley Madison. Uh, a- Ashley Madison is a website, some of us have heard of it. Um, <laughs> um, uh, it is a website that, uh, now there was a Super Bowl commercial that they tried to get a Super Bowl commercial uh, that they, they were told no to. But Ashley Madison is a company that was started by a guy named Noel Biterman. And it is a website that the, the mission statement is Life is short, have an affair. And it is a website that exists to connect married men and women to cheat on each other. And it's like, it's interesting because we're going to see Jesus is going to say the opposite. Life is short. Hell is hot. Forever is a long time. I mean, that, that, would, that would be Jesus' line, okay? Um, <laughs> and uh, and, and so, so basically what's going to happen though is, is, is they interviewed, I was reading this article, this was years ago um, in the uh, Wall Street Journal, and they were interviewing uh, Noel Biderman. And he said, monogamy is a failed experiment. So I created this website. And what was interesting is, I think in 2015 or 2016, the website got hacked. Sin loves to be kept secret. All the names and all the email addresses of everybody who was on that website and gave their information was released. 37 million people. That's over 10% of the population of America. Most of them were men. It was basically a big trap for men. There was almost no women who wanted to be on that. We live in a society that is completely sex-saturated, lust-saturated. How about the pornography industry, which we talk about regularly here because it's such a pernicious part of our, our culture. And there's so much with that that it teaches. What, what's interesting is, you know, you see the science catching up to the Bible, all the ways that pornography is harmful and hurtful to people. Um, first of all, it makes men sexually lazy, and women too, but particularly it makes I mean you'll, because you choose pixels over a real person. You choose a fake woman over a real woman. You choose many women over one woman. Right? This is why women or men who watch pornography cannot love a woman who ages. Cannot love a woman who's normal. Cannot love a woman who's had kids. Cannot love a woman who's also simultaneously a mom. Cannot love a woman who knows the word no. Because you know in pornography they pay women to act like men in sex. That's what that's what they pay them for. And you'll find is is that it makes men very sexually lazy and it rewires the brain. It creates new neural pathways, right? If you've ever walked in the woods and there's certain paths that it's like, well, everyone walked on these paths. (laughs) So that's the path you walk on because it's easy to get there. The idea is that you can actually, and this is the power of repentance too. If you repent, they say, if if you turn away from watching pornography, your brain will reheal itself. Isn't that encouraging? It speaks of the restorative nature of repentance. See, what you want to do is you want to create neural pathways that lead you to your spouse, (laughs) not neural pathways that lead you to a screen. What happens with pornography, it's you sexually stimulated alone with a screen, which is the exact opposite of what marriage is supposed to be. You with your spouse, no screens together physically. So there's pornography. The, the other major area, well, there's multiple areas is same-sex attraction. I'm sure, you know, it's like, well, we're gonna talk about, we're gonna try to talk about everything today if we have time. Um, same-sex attraction, okay? If you ever heard of, about that, okay? That's being attracted to somebody of the same sex. Now, I wanna talk about this for a while because we've had many people over the years that I've met in our church. I've had friends. I've had people in college ministry. I had one guy actually that was connected. He was not a believer. This was while I was at Duke. He said, I wanna meet with you. He said, the reason I joined your spiritual study. I called him that because it sounded cooler, spiritual study. Um, (laughs) It was really a Bible study. He said, the reason reason that I uh, joined your spiritual study was because I've been watching so much pornography that I've been starting to question my sexuality. And I'm starting to have different sexual feelings than I've ever had before toward the same sex. I'm not saying it's always connected, but it was an interesting kind of uh, moment for me as I was talking to this guy. So same-sex attraction, okay, now, now this is, here, here's what we're dealing with. If you're ever dealing with somebody in the church, and this happens a lot of times in middle school and high school, if you're ever dealing with a middle schooler or high schooler that struggles with same-sex attraction, we know what they're dealing with. I'm gonna tell you what they're dealing with. They're dealing with an unanswered prayer request. Have you ever dealt with an unanswered prayer request? That's what, that's what it is. If some middle schoolers are saying, God, please help me in this area of my life, I've got some interesting desires I don't know what to do with. And I, mom and dad have been trying to leave me, and I'm really struggling. So if, if we don't know what to do with an unanswered prayer request, then we better, we better do something else. So what we're trying to say to people is all right, look, one, if you're struggling with same sex you don't have to leave the church. For a long time, well, people don't understand me, so I got to, no, no, we want to talk about it. Now, let me give you some categories because we all need language. Language is half the battle, right? This is like what we do on Sundays. We talk about different categorizations so we can think rightly. Let me give you the four categories when it comes to same-sex attraction. Desire, orientation, identity, uh, activity. Desire, orientation, identity, activity. Those are four categories. What you will find, you know, and you have to, and again, being in ministry, I get a front row seat at the best and worst things in people's lives. I have conversations all the time with people. Here's how same-sex attraction desire works for some people. Sometimes people experience same-sex attraction for a certain season of their life. They don't even know why it's come upon them. Sometimes they will will feel same-sex attraction just for a certain one person. They won't understand that either. And by the way, a lot, a lot of times what happens is what is exotic becomes erotic. That's a good principle. So, so if I feel like you are different than me, then I actually might be attracted to you. So a boy or girl, let's say a this situation, who grows up and feels like all the other boys are very different than him, they are exotic. Then what it becomes is often, sometimes, erotic. So what we have to do, right, as a church, what we say is we repent of all sexual sin. We say all sex out of heterosexual marriage is sinful. That's my answer to everything. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? What about this? All sex outside of heterosexual marriage is sinful. Wrong needs to be repentant of. But you'll say that with a lot of grace if you're trying to work on your own sexual sin. If you're really trying to put it to death. Now, orientation is, hey, this seems to be growing in my life. It's strong and it's persistent across time. And we always say the, the goals we're dealing with people is not you know, again, the, part of the church is we've we've wrestled with what do we say and how do what what do we promise and what can we not we can promise forgiveness. How much transformation can we promise in this life? And right, those are all questions. And, and where where the church has landed as we've wrestled for hundreds of years with these questions and more recently in the last fifty years, we've said the goal is not ultimately heterosexuality. The goal is holiness. The, the choice may be celibacy. The choice may be an uphill fight, but we're all fighting together. That's what the church says. All of us are are fighting all the sins. We're gonna see the language that Jesus uses. We're all trying to put our sin to death in our life. Identity is the third area. Identity is when I fully embrace it and I go public with it. You can't do that. As a believer, you cannot do that. You cannot say this is my identity. Your identity is found in Christ. That's the coming out of the closet moment. That's the full embracing of it. That's, that's, That's the world's baptism and then activity is the natural overflow of finally, and sometimes people do activity even before identity, but it's usually the overflow of the I have fully embraced it, I have a new community, now I act out this activity, whether in pornography or with people. Then there's emotional lust, right? Uh, which women tend to struggle with more. Why was Fifty Shades of Grey the fastest-selling fiction book in human history? Don't tell me women don't struggle with that. It's a book based on emotional and physical loss. That's, the, it was a three-part series that got made into a movie. That was the fastest-selling book in human history. That was fiction. In part because now we can read on our, you know, in the same, in the same way that people are, have more ex, ex, uh, accessibility to looking at pornography because of tablets. They're saying that trashy romance novels are on the rise because no one knows what you're reading on the train because you no longer have to carry it with you. You can buy it and download it to your Kindle or to your iPad. And so what do we do? What do we do with these things? Let's look what Jesus says. He gives us a strong view of all of this. And then he says this. If your right hand, or sorry, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Imagine hearing this for the first time. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. So identify it, rip it out, tear it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, is he literally talking about cutting off hands and tearing eyes? Well, Origen, one of the early church fathers, thought he was. And Origen, this is documented in history, he was so overwhelmed by his own sexual temptation that he castrated himself. He afterwards said it didn't work. <laughs> guy, you know, and actually told other people, don't do that. We're going to give you a different option today. Okay. Um, th- th- this is, um, but what he's doing here is, is he's using extreme language to, to get at a point. Okay. This is the opposite of how most of us deal with sin. Most of us tr- spend most of our time minimizing and managing sin. I mean, that's what we do. We minimize it usually by rationalizing it or with the language that we talk about it with. Right. Have you ever said you're struggling with sin, but if we looked at your life, you're not really struggling. You're enjoying it. But it looks, it sounds really good to say you're struggling with it. What's our favorite phrase? I fell into sin. Really? Let's watch the replay. You know? <laughs> looks like you planned it three days before your kids left. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think you fell into it. I think you dove into it. Uh, we try to minimize it with the language. right—right. Right, a lot of times we'll lie to ourselves about it. You won't let yourself, you'll, you'll tell yourself it's not pornography that you're looking at. You, you'll tell yourself that you're not talking to the intern because, you know, she's cute and you like her, but because she needs help. I mean, you, we just lie to ourselves all the time, minimize it. Or we try to manage it, which is, you know, we, we all try to do that. It's like, well, you know, I, I, I mean, I can't really kind of put this fully to death because I kind of, well, part of me, the worst part of me kind of really likes it, you know, and I don't know what my life would be like if I didn't have at least a little bit in my life. And as long as no one knows, and as long as it's less than, in whatever that is for you, less than once a week, or less than once a month, or only a few times a year, or only when I travel, or whatever it is, you know, and, and so we try to manage it, and it reminded me, there was that, that, that famous Netflix show that came out, I think, right during quarantine, um, about Joe Exotic and the, the, uh, the tiger guy, okay, whatever, you guys know who I'm talking about, all of you act like, I didn't see it, yeah, sure, okay, okay. Um, uh, <laughs> Well, what's interesting about that, that show is Joe Exotic is this kind of, well, he's a very interesting guy, but um, what, what's interesting about it is the whole show, it's fascinating among other things, is he keeps tigers. And you're like, what is this about? And then you, you meet like some of the staff and like one staff's missing a leg and one staff's missing a hand and you're like, this is what happens when you play with a tiger, <laughs> right? I mean, there, w- w- should anybody be surprised? I don't know if you ever heard the story of the girl and she got the pet snake And she was kind of a famous story. And she got this pet snake. She's really excited about it. The snake's laying next to her, like kind of curled up. And then as the snake gets a little older, the snake starts to stretch out and lay next to her kind of more long long ways. She gets kind of excited, thinks it's cute, goes and tells the pet owner, hey, I've slept with my, you know, the snake. And the snake's stretching, you know, herself out at night. And the snake owner says, the snake is waiting to see when it's bigger than you so that it can eat you. How much of us, that's what we do with sin? Oh, isn't it cute? Isn't it funny how it lays down? It's actually, think about this. Why does God say to Cain, who ends up killing Abel, sin is crouching at your door? Why do you crouch? Why, Why do we, think about it, why do you crouch? You crouch for two reasons, to look small and so that you can quickly jump on somebody. What a picture of sin. Sin desires to look small so it can jump on you. So Jesus says, take extreme measures. Okay, so, Uh, Which is the opposite of what we do. We make excuses. So he says to cut off your hand. Now, now, look, I can't tell you all the different areas that that's going to affect you and what you need to do. But I can give you a couple examples. When I was a freshman in college, this was back before, right before, but right back before Wi-Fi. Okay, there was no Wi-Fi. So you had to have these, these massive cables called ethernet cables that you plugged into the wall and you plugged into your computer and that was the only way you get the internet. And I remember... Uh, One of my friends, he was struggling with a porn addiction and he was on on our hall and he was trying to follow Christ and he was really struggling with it. And I remember he knocks on on my door with his ethernet cable one day. And he goes, man, my roommate's gone for the weekend. I'm gonna sin if I have this in my room. So he gave it to me. And I remember thinking, well, thanks, man. I remember thinking that's really really bold that you do that. And then I remember thinking, do you gotta go to the library to to get on the internet all weekend? That sounds really terrible. (laughs) You realize, well, that's part of what it means to cut off your hand. What, what is it? Well, it will be painful, it will hurt, and life will be harder. But that's actually what happens. You know, I, I've met several people over the years who, and this not, not saying everybody who has a dumb phone has a dumb phone for this reason, but I've met people who have dumb phones. And one of the reasons, or in some cases, the reason they have a dumb phone is because of a past struggle of theirs. And whenever I meet somebody with a dumb phone, I'm like, it must take you forever to text. <laughs> what do you do if you're like, you know, driving and wanna check your email? which you shouldn't be doing anyway, but I'm just saying, <laughs> you know? And you just start to realize, okay, actually, this is, what, this, is, this is a great principle that we're learning from. We have to take extreme measures, you know? So, so mo- for most of you, it's gonna be a technological measure if we're talking about this area, right? So historically, how do men, how did men, because it is men historically, historically, what's the number one me- way that men find pornography? Their dad's hidden stash, that's the answer. Historically. They find the magazines, they find the VHSs, they find the DVDs. I mean, that's like nine out of 10 guys, that's how they got into it. If you're going back 80s or or earlier. Um, What's the number one way that people uh, find out about pornography today? Accidentally. Much younger through the internet. It's hard to know exact ages, nine, 10, 11 years old. Now listen, the Bible says not to cut other people's hands off, to cut your hand off. But you may need to do some things for your kids so that they don't have to cut both their hands and tear out both their eyes the rest of their life. Because we let things in so early into the life of our kids that they don't even know how to deal with it. They don't even know how to process it. They don't even know how to talk about it. They don't even know how to tell you. So Jesus says, I want you to take extreme measures, identify it. For some of you, it's going to be a relationship. You're like, I can't, you know, I've met people before. I've talked to high schoolers and college students who they almost become a different person when they were in that relationship. And they didn't talk to their parents and they were very physical and they didn't come to church and they need to cut that off. Some of you, maybe I can't keep this in my house. I can't go to those places. Some of you, I can't travel anymore, whatever it is. From there, look what he says. One more time, I want you to see this. He says in verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, and then look what he warns. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. He's basically saying this. If you're not fighting against sexual sin, you have no assurance of salvation. That's one of. The, how do you know you're a believer? You're in the fight. Are you perfect? No. Do you never fail or fall? No. But are you fighting the battle? Yes. That's the sign that you believe. Look at what he says. Now, this is interesting. This is amazing. He's going to go from sex and lust to divorce. They're all connected. Look what he says. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual morality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we got to talk just for a little bit about divorce. And I can't say everything about divorce. I I did a, we did a series on Malachi where the last two sermons I talked about divorce and remarriage, you can reference those. But I'll say what I always say when we talk about divorce. It's a painful subject. Some of you, your whole lives have been marked by this. It, your, what your grandfather did, or what your grandmother did, or what your mom did, or what your aunt did—I mean, it has affected and infected your whole family. And you, and you think about it; it's been one of the marks on your entire family. We also know that there are—whenever you talk about divorce, you're always talking people have people have really hard marriages, really hard marriages, where they don't have the grounds divorce, but they wish they did. And it's hard when you when you talk to people when they are in broken very difficult marriages, where there's very little love, where there's very little romance, where there's very little communication. So it's a very tough, difficult thing. But what Jesus says here is he says, okay, look, he says, you heard Moses say a certificate of divorce. Now, what was that about? Let me, this is kind of some new information for us. The certificate of divorce, you have to go to Matthew 19. I won't go there now, but write that down if you want to look at it. Matthew 19, Jesus answers more about the certificate of divorce. And he basically says, the certificate of divorce was given because your hearts were hard. The certificate of divorce was actually the way to protect women. Don't ever believe the Bible doesn't have a high view of women. The Bible has the highest view of women. The idea that the first chapter of the Bible says man and women are created in God's image, male and female, he created them equally in the image of God, that is a, that is a, that is a profound statement. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the Bible has a low view of women. Um, but the culture had a low view of women. And so the certificate of divorce was God's way to say, if you are in an abusive marriage, you need to have a way out. Because of the hardness of heart, and you need a way to protect the woman afterwards because she would have had no rights. The certificate of divorce would have been her way to say, I can get a job. I I wasn't adultery. I wasn't unfaithful. And I can move back in home. I can have social standing. I can move back home with my family. So he says, okay, so this is what happens. He says, the certificate of divorce. But then if you also look in Matthew 19, he spends almost all his time talking about marriage. That what Jesus tends to do every time someone wants to talk about divorce, he wants to talk about what marriage is. And I love what John Stott says. John Stott was a a very famous one-on-pastor in London. He said that whenever people, he had a large church, he said whenever people came to him and they were like, I want to get divorced, we're thinking about getting divorced. He says, okay, we're going to do three counseling sessions. He says, in the first counseling session, it's going to be an hour long, and all I'm going to do is give you a theology of marriage. We're going to look at all the scriptures and all the glory of what God's created marriage to be. One man, one woman, one lifetime. I'm committed to you in all the ways that you'll change. I'm not going anywhere. All of those kind of ideas to becoming one. Then he says, the second thing we're going to do, he says, we're not going to talk about divorce. You're going to go home for a week. You're going to come back. He says, the second session, we're going to do another hour, and all I'm going to do is talk to you about reconciliation and repentance. Because even when God, you know, says, permits something, it doesn't mean that he commands it. Even though the Bible uh, occasionally uh, permits or allows for divorce under certain categories, adultery, abandonment, abuse. um, It doesn't necessitate that. And then he says in the third one, we'll talk about divorce and remarriage if you guys still want to meet for a third time and talk about that. And he talked about the fruit he saw in bringing it back to what is marriage, what is reconciliation. Now we live in a society where um, no-fault divorce is massive. You know, no-fault divorce started in 1917 in Soviet Russia. Very interesting. And then it got brought first to, you guessed it, California. That's right. Uh, First came to California in 1969, but guess who brought it there? Ronald Reagan. Said it was one of the greatest regrets of his entire political career. But that was in 1969. So from 1969 to 1974, it went to 45 different states. So until roughly until 1974, 1975, if you wanted to get divorced, you had to go to court and you had to show adultery, abandonment, or abuse. There was not irreconcilable differences. And again, we don't know the difference in causation and correlation, okay, all the time, like, you know, but there is a, there's a correlation between female poverty and no-fault divorce. And the same way we see, it, was, it, it women, unfortunately, I don't know just the way God's, the way the world is designed for men to be leaders and protectors and for women to be helpers and receivers, that often when these things fall apart, we, we know who suffers the most, women and children do, all the time. So Jesus says divorce. Here, here's how we view divorce here at Two Cities, if you want to know. We view divorce like amputation. It is the last resort, right? What happens if you hurt your leg? You just stretch it, right? What happens if it's really hurt? Well, then you take medicine. What happens if it's really hurt? Then you go see a doctor. Well, what if there's really something wrong with it? You get a surgery. What if it doesn't work? You get another surgery, what if that doesn't work? You get another opinion. I mean, you only amputate something if it's so terrible and it's beginning to infect the rest of your body and would kill and harm everything else. Divorce is never something that you should want to do. It's only something in the most extreme cases that you have to do. And it's something that we always want that the word of God and wise counsel. This is why the best thing you could do, it's like, what's the extreme measure some of you need to take? You need to cut some of the fat out of your schedule so that you can actually be in meaningful relationships with other people, so that you can deal with all this stuff when it's small. You you know that, right? That's why Jesus is like, why is he focused on lust? Because you have to focus on things at the root, and you have to focus on things that are simple and small. And you have to start with things where they are. And so he, he says, okay, so there's, this is so interesting. There's lust, there's divorce, and then I can't believe it. I never noticed this until studying this this week. What, what's right after divorce? It's, it's not, you gotta read the Bible. This is why we go line by line, verse by verse. It's all connected. Look at this next, look at this next section. It, it, it's, it's the cure. It's the way forward. It's like, what do you do when you're struggling with lust and you're struggling with anger and you're, you're, you're afraid that your marriage will be, fall apart in divorce? Well, Jesus deals with this. Look, he says this in verse 33. Again, you've heard it, that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. So earlier he was dealing with the sixth commandment, do not murder, And then he was dealing with, I believe it's the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Now he's dealing with the ninth commandment, do not lie. Here's what he says. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Okay, what do you do when you're stuck? You tell the truth and make commitments. That's it. How did you get in all this trouble? You've been lying to yourself, you've been lying to your spouse, you've been lying to others. Look what he says. He says, okay, but I say to you, don't take an oath because what they were doing, basically, I'll show you this. They were only saying, I only have to keep my commitments if, 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 I, if I only uh, make an oath on certain things. Like, you know, you ever grew up and your mom's like, well, you know, do you swear on your grandmother's grave? It's like, oh, I do no, no, no. Right? You kind of feel like, okay, is that more serious? He's saying, it doesn't matter. We're always under oath. It's kind of the idea here. The idea is we're always to keep our commitments. The idea is everything's sacred. There isn't a sacred secular divide that we want to make in our lives. He says this, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, verse 36. And do not take an oath by your own head. He's just talking about your own ability here. For you cannot make one hair, white or black, verse 37. And here's the summary. This is how you move forward. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. What he's saying is this. There there are two reasons, we know this, because in every study that's been done, there's only two reasons people lie ultimately. They want to promote themselves or they want to protect themselves. I mean, you also lie to be polite sometimes. You know, does the dress look nice to me? Yes. Uh, You know, um, (laughs) so that's its own category and it's maybe its own problem. But but, but the the vast majority of like 90% of the reasons people lie is they either want to promote themselves or protect themselves. They either want to make themselves look better, right? Or they want to not make themselves look as bad as they really are. And this is such a powerful idea, right? This is why Jesus, the only clear time that Jesus gives the clearest mission is in John 18 when, he said, when they ask him, what are you doing, why are you here? He goes, I came to testify to the truth. Jesus later says earlier, says, I am the way, the truth, life. That here's the path forward. You have to first be honest with yourself. And I don't know where you are today. But some of you have to just admit, I talked to that assistant because I think She's cute. Some of you just have to, you've never even admitted to yourself that you look at pornography. You've never like, you've called it something else. You've called it adult entertainment. You've, you've, you've found ways to just say it's looking at Instagram when it's looking at inappropriate stuff. I mean, you've, you've, we do this, right? Because we, we, it's euphemisms. That's how we deal with things. Some of you need to admit why you're traveling, why you're trying to always get out of the house, why you need, why you always spend so much time alone, right? I told you the story before the guy, he, he had to finally be honest with himself. He's like, I bought a big house because I wanted a big house. He's like, it took me like three years. I kept telling everyone I wanted to entertain and be hospitable. He's like, I wanted a big house. He's like, it was just so freeing. When I just said, that's why I bought it. Now we can have the question, well, should you have, it was too expensive. It's like, well, you can't even have that conversation if you're not honest with yourself. Some of you, you you have to admit, you eat too much. Some of you, you drink too much. Some of you, you have way, you have inappropriate relationships with somebody of the opposite sex. I mean, you just have to admit those things. Okay, well, what do you do then? It's like, okay, that's for, I admit it to myself. That's really, really hard. I, I, I'd like to be willfully blind to things. And by the way, if you find people that are caught, they often will be that way. So they'll be blind to themselves. They, they've lied to themselves about it for so long. The second thing you have to admit it to God. That's confession. Confession. The definition of confession is I agree with God. That's what you're saying. That every confession is like, Lord, this is what you said. I agree. This is how it shows up in my life. And then you have to tell one other person. Not every other person. That's that's weird. Right? We don't want, we, want, we don't want secrecy. No one knows. We don't want privacy. We're Sorry, we want privacy. Only a few people need to know. And here's the great thing. Jesus' words, when we read just his words, they condemn us. But when we look at his life and his ministry and his going to the cross, it was to save us. Jesus Christ, through his ministry, he shows us that he loves to save sexual sinners uniquely. So you think about the woman at the well who's married four times, cohabitating. We think cohabitating is new. She was doing it back then too. Um, she was cohabitating. She was on her, heading toward her fifth marriage. She was getting water in the middle of the day. Why? Because she's embarrassed and because she's an outcast. And Jesus speaks to her, shares the gospel with her. She becomes the first female evangelist in the New Testament. It's like, okay, chapter eight of John. There's a woman. She's caught in adultery, which would have meant that she was naked. She was brought naked in front of the whole crowd. They're, they're making fun of her. They're going to stone her. He protects her. Then he says to her, do I, con- do I condemn you? No. Okay, go and sin no more. Jesus, as a, it's interesting because Jesus' perspective is he's both a single man giving this sermon, but also we understand throughout the whole scope of history that Jesus Christ has been in the worst, most difficult marriage for 2,000 years. He's been married to the church. You want to talk about the worst bride ever? Right? I mean, you, bridezilla, that's the church, okay? You know, you know who, who she, he is forgiving her and praying for her as she kills and crucifies him. And nobody took more extreme measures than Jesus Christ. Because you look and you go, well, where do you get the fortitude to, do, to make the hard decisions that you need to make? You've got to look and go, Jesus Christ didn't give two hands. He gave his whole body. He didn't cut off his hand. He let his hands be pierced for us and for our sins. He shed all of his blood so that we could be forgiven. Because here's the truth. The only sin that you can fight is forgiven sin. You have to see sin for what it is. You have to see how terrible it is. You have to see what it costs. And then you have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and say yes to Christ. And we need to do that together. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we just come to you right now in Jesus' name. And I pray again for the same groups of people, Lord. I pray for single people in this church, Lord. Particularly, I pray for the single men that they would rise up, Lord that they would see marriage as a good thing, that they would see the Proverbs say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and finds favor from the Lord. They would move forward. Lord, we pray for those who are broken and hurting and find themselves single again, Lord, and we ask for so much grace for them. It's hard to do life. It's hard to raise kids. It's hard to do that marriage. It's very hard to do that when we're a single parent or find ourselves single again. Lord, I pray for couples, Lord, who are in all different seasons and stages of their marriage. Lord, I still believe that one of the great witnesses we have to the world are strong, healthy, vibrant, loving, forgiving marriages. Lord, and help us as we're in this journey together of saying no to sin, yes to Christ, of identifying the areas of sin, of cutting them off, of tearing them away, throwing them and throwing them away, Lord. Lord, let us be willing to sacrifice the part for the whole, Lord. Let us sacrifice part of us to save all of us. Let us sacrifice the present for the sake of the future. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.